Thank you for joining us on Loving Theology. Our aim is to reconcile our hearts to the truth in God's Word. We hope that you find something inspirational in today's message. Hi everybody, I'm Joseph Walter, and today I wanted to talk about my post, God's Commandments are Love. Now, we're in a series on what is love. And basically what we talked about in the first post is that um, looking at that verse that says God is love, we saw that basically whatever God um, does, whoever he is, is the very definition of love. Everything that he does is loving. Even whenever he does something that we don't really think is a prime example of maybe him being loving, it actually is. It's an example of love. And so rather than understanding um, God or, or restricting God to what he should be doing based on what we think love is, Instead, let's take a look at what God does, and especially whenever it doesn't seem loving, let's try to understand it better so that we can then understand what love is um, and, and have the proper definition of love. This week, we're going to take a look at his commands and, and really focus in on that. So um, starting off from last week, we, we looked at the story of the adulterous woman. In it, we saw the powerful way that Jesus loved her. He defended her, um, and he refused to condemn her. I mean, wow, it was a great example of how loving Jesus is. But there's just a little bit more to this story that I wanted to talk about this week. Right after he said, neither do I condemn you, he said, go and from now on, sin no more. So what happened? Because I thought that Jesus wasn't condemning her, but in that very next verse, it sounds kind of like he is condemning her, or at the very least condemning her lifestyle. Did God's love, did Jesus' love for her take a back seat to his righteousness? Or did his mercy have to skip a beat for his justice? Is that maybe what's going on here? I think the answer is no, but let's, let's look closer at it and let's see um, in what way was perhaps even this command an act of God's love towards her. So let's start by taking a closer look at the command. He's saying, go and sin no more. So let's examine the effects of sin to see what they do to us. Um, so first of all, one of the first effects of sin is that it takes our freedom. We talked about this in our post that we called Set Free where basically we explain that, um, this comes from Second Peter, that whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. That sin becomes habitual to the point that even whenever we want to stop, we can't. Take a look at that post for more of a, a discussion on that point. The, the second thing that sin does is that it inhibits our prayers. This is something that we talked about in our series called The Power of Prayer. So in the first part of that series, we talked about how sin causes us to hide our hearts from God. And as a result, we can't really hear him. Additionally, um, we took a look at all of the verses and all of the promises where God says that he hears our prayers. And interestingly, we saw that all of those promises are conditional, um, that they're given as promises to the righteous. So whenever there's sin in our lives, it even inhibits the power of our prayers to affect not only us and us hearing him, but in, the, in affecting the world around us um, as we pray and he hears us. One of the third effects of sin is that it keeps satisfaction just out of reach. Now, the way to understand this maybe is that whenever we choose to sin, we're choosing to sort of gratify a sinful desire. And at some level in that sinful desire is an element of covetousness. Now, covetousness basically says that we shouldn't be satisfied with what we have, but that if we could get something that we don't have, then we'd be satisfied. The problem is that as we um, indulge these sinful desires, we're effectively nurturing that covetousness and allowing it to grow. So what that means is that as we do that thing and now we have that thing that we thought would satisfy us, well, now we have it. And so covetousness tells us what you have, it's not enough. Um, and you need something more. 
basically right as, as we think that we're going to finally get that pleasure and satisfaction, maybe we do for just a minute, but then we feel a sense of emptiness that there's still something more out there. We need to get something else to feel really satisfied because that, that didn't quite do it. And, and I think that's the way that sin keeps satisfaction just out of reach. You know, all of these uh, effects of sin could be summarized by saying that sin produces death. Now, um, the way that it produces death is that it produces death in us presently. And that's through the ways that we just talked about. But it also produces death for us eternally. And this is a bit of a scary thought, but I want to read from Hebrews 10 real quick, just to kind of paint the picture of this. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. That's a terrifying verse. Um, Let's take a step back. Let's start with what we were saying. So how was Jesus's command an example of love? Well, we know, first of all, that he wasn't condemning her. He, He said as much. So if he wasn't condemning her, then what was his purpose in giving this command? I think John 3 verse 17 actually sheds a little bit of light on this. It says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We talked in uh, in our series or in our post called Resting in Our Salvation about how sin really does damage to our soul. And God's desire, Jesus' desire in coming here was to give us his commands to protect us from the damage that sin can do in our lives. So his love isn't satisfied simply to not condemn us. Instead, it pursues us further so that we might be saved from the damage that sin can do to our lives. And in that way, the command that he gave her to go and sin no more was yet another expression of love. So we saw yesterday how whenever Jesus defended her and refused to condemn her, that was loving. And maybe now we can even see how his command to her to go and sin no more was also born out of love for her. But why did this happen to her? she was still humiliated in front of everyone. It was still a horrible ordeal to go through. Now, the simplest answer is because the Pharisees did it to her. What's more, they didn't do it for a good reason. They did it out of jealousy, trying to undermine Jesus's ministry. You see, the the law may have been that she should have been stoned for committing adultery, but the custom in Jesus's day was that that law wasn't very commonly enforced. Instead, typically the husband was allowed to divorce her and the adulterer was fined. So why did they force the issue today? They forced it because Jesus was in town and they wanted to make an example. They wanted to basically use her to get at Jesus. So maybe that's the the answer to the first question, but perhaps the harder question is, why did God allow this to happen to her? And um, wouldn't love have, have saved her from this humiliation and being used in this way? See, she was caught in the very act of adultery. You've got to imagine that that's pretty rare. And so of all of the days that she could have been caught in the act of adultery, why was it on this one day that Jesus was in town and that the Pharisees would force this issue? Maybe it's precisely because Jesus was in town and he was there to help her through this, not only to defend her and to to not condemn her, but to also save her by giving her this command. Had she not been caught in the act of adultery, she would have gone on sinning and experienced those effects of sins that we talked about earlier. If she had been caught on some other day, then she wouldn't have had this powerful encounter where Jesus, I think, literally changed the direction of her life. What the Pharisees meant for harm, God turned for good. Hebrews 12, 6 says that he disciplines those whom he loves. Now, discipline doesn't seem like love at first, and it doesn't really feel like maybe the epitome of the way in which he loves us, but I think that it is. Hebrews goes on to explain it this way. In verse 9 through 11, it says, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. They disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he, being God, disciplines us for our good. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, 
but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, commands without consequences do not produce fruit. Any parent can tell you that. And he wants us to experience, experience the fruit or the benefits of his commands that he's given us. And so his discipline helps those commands to take root in us and produce that fruit. We can see in this that God doesn't discipline us for his own benefit, as if he could receive anything from us. No, he disciplines us for our benefit so that we can receive all of the benefits that righteousness and his commands represent. You see, whether he, we, he disciplines us through allowing us to experience the consequences of our actions, or more directly, he, him disciplining us isn't evidence that he doesn't love us, but in fact is evidence that he does. Also, perhaps we can take some courage and submit to that discipline and learn what we need to so that it might produce in us the fruit that it intends, the benefit that he intends by it, so that we can have peace and all of the other benefits. If you would like more content, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. You can also find videos of our content on the Loving Theology YouTube channel. Visit us at lovingtheology.com to find all of our posts and links to our references. You can also subscribe to our email at our website or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for joining us.